tonight's talk is about conceit. It could be a two-part series. Conceit is actually considered to be the eighth, ninth, and tenth army of Mara. Stephen and I were listening to a new Bob Dylan tape just the other day, and there was a song about conceit on it, which was kind of interesting. And the first line of the song is, there's a whole lot of people suffering tonight from the disease of conceit. There's so many people dying tonight from the disease of conceit. Given that conceit is given so much importance in the Buddhist tradition, just to think that it covers three out of ten aspects of Mara or armies of Mara, a good question to ask is, why do human beings suffer so much from conceit? And how does that happen? Please keep in mind that Mara is that which hides the truth. It prevents us from feeling at home within ourselves. That hidden wholeness, which is our deepest potential. The eighth army of Mara is self-condemnation. It's a feeling of worthlessness, putting oneself down. The ninth army is considered to be the desire for gain, reverence, or fame. The tenth army is considered to be self-importance, or putting others down. I really appreciate this framework of defining conceit and understanding what it is. Because normally our definition of conceit is usually limited to the kind of arrogance that we all, you know, think of as conceit. But in this framework, it's considered to be both putting oneself down, that feeling of worthlessness, as well as that feeling of inflation self-importance. The truth is, is that there's something so much deeper than this sense of worth and worthlessness, this tension that we go back and forth between, this polarity. In general, how does conceit prevent us from seeing clearly? How does it keep our perception of the truth hidden? There is a story of a Jewish rabbi who, when asked by his pupils why in the Old Testament there were so many instances of the apparitions of God, whereas nowadays such things did not happen, And he replied, because nowadays nobody is humble enough to bend down low enough. The sense of conceit implies a a separation. It implies a lack of appreciation. It's very painful. It's a very deep source of suffering. Conceit or Mara, it's like we have blinders on. We feel so separate. Its function is arrogance. It has the characteristics of haughtiness or pride or vanity. And greed or craving is necessary for conceit to happen. It's dependent on greed. One of my favorite things in the Buddhist texts is this definition of conceit. 
that conceit should be regarded as madness. There was a teacher who came to IMS in 1978 when I was on staff, and he made a very deep impression on me. He was a forest monk from Upper Burma, and it said that he had just spent 33 years in a cave before he came here. (laughs) He has died recently. He had a very simple way of presenting the truth. And the thing that he told me that has always um, inspired me is a very simple thing. He said, keep your mind like water, not like a rock, but like water. And this is incredibly simple advice. You know, I walked away kind of, (laughs) is that all (laughs) you're going to say to me? And yet it's been so profound for me over these years, is just remembering that difference and understanding the difference between a mind like water and a mind like a rock. Our pride, our sense of I or self that we depend on is like a rock. It's that feeling of heaviness, that identification with I is such a burden It's so heavy. It's dense and thick. Water is very light, flowing and fluid. There's a sense of ease and comfort and well-being when the mind isn't clinging, when there's that letting go, letting the attention just flow. That's the difference between a mind like water, that lightness and ease, and a mind heavy like a rock, that burden of I that we carry. Lao Tzu said that the reason why the river and the sea are able to be king of the hundred valleys is that they excel in taking the lower position. This is a kind of humility. Conceit is the opposite of this humility. Water has that quality of buoyancy and fluidity. Conceit is a disease. It's this opposite of ease and fluidity. It's important not to underestimate conceit in our minds as human beings. It's very, very strong. It's said that conceit only vanishes upon full enlightenment. It's the deep, deep root. Very difficult to overcome. There is what is considered threefold conceit. There's equality conceit, inferiority conceit, and superiority conceit. Equality conceit is that feeling of I am equal to others. Inferiority conceit is the feeling I am worse than others. Superiority conceit is I am better than others. It's said that only in overcoming this threefold conceit that we totally put an end to our suffering. I am equal to, I am better than, I am worse than. It's such a strong root that it's only in (laughs) considering that we overcome this that we put an end to suffering. If we don't understand the truth, the truth that there is no solid I, no solid ego identity behind the process that we call me, my body, or my life, 
then we usually grasp onto the idea, we grab onto the idea, I am better than at times, or I am equal to, or I am worse than. As I mentioned before, many people will consider that conceit is just this I am better idea. But it's really any kind of self-reference. It's the same as the feeling I am worse than or I'm no good. It's all based on comparison. When we see the mind and body clearly, there is no possibility for conceit. Mostly what I'll be talking about tonight are aspects of the eighth and the tenth army of Mara, the the sense of inferiority, conceit, self-condemning, and the tenth, self-importance, or putting other people down. One of the benefits of sitting for a long time is seeing this constant evaluation that goes on in the mind, or near constant evaluation of comparing, you know, I'm not as good as other people, or I'm better than other people, or I'm doing good, or I'm not doing good. You know, how many times has that thought gone through your mind, and you grabbed onto it, and it either ruined your day, or made you feel great, like, you know, that you were doing really well, just from grabbing on to those thoughts. Self-importance, thinking highly of oneself, usually arises in the practice when one has some interesting experiences and the mind will become overexcited or bubbly. And the kind of thoughts that appear are usually, I bet I'm doing better than everyone else, or I wonder if the other yogis are doing as good as me. Or I bet no one's practicing as hard as I am. You know, there's often that kind of thought of inflation, one's feeling better than. They're all self-centered thoughts, or, you know, just plain old, I'm a good yogi. When there are these kind of thoughts, and we identify with them as mine, We feel separate. We suffer. It isn't the truth. It's false. The other side of the coin to this inflation of feeling better than are the kind of thoughts of self-condemnation or self-deprecation. I'm the worst yogi here. I wonder what mindfulness is. This is insight meditation, and I haven't had one insight (laughs) since I started practicing. You know, those are... (laughs) I'm failing at this, too, just like I failed at everything else in my life. Those Those are the eighth army of Mara. And I think for Westerners, that army tends to be more critical than the tenth in some ways. We tend to identify with those thoughts the most. Both of these perspectives are lies. They're based on the rock, on I. And even feeling equal to someone is a lie. It's all just insecurity at play. One side is inflation and the other is deflation. They're a kind of constant defense that the I creates over and over again to feel like it's there, it's important. And often the quieter we get on retreat, the more this conceit in this way will surface anything to assert itself, any way that it can grab hold, it will. And it can get very seductive. One can get attached to anything. One can become so identified with being rotten with being no good. 
one can become very attached. One's identity can be this kind of pain, especially if we've carried this identity for many, many mind moments of our life. It's often quite difficult to let go because it feels like it's us, you know, and if we let go of this, what's going to be there? We feel like there'll be nothing and we get terrified, even though the identity is so painful that nothingness is worse than I'm rotten. You know, that's what, that's what's underneath that, that, that constant holding of that pattern. One can get attached to feeling the best. That can become one's identity. I'm sure you've all had that feeling of wanting to be special, wanting to be the most special yogi, or in in some way wanting to feel important. And again, if that has become one's identity, and especially if that has become an identity that becomes fixed over time, to let go of that into something unknown like, you know, the great nothingness, we, we attach to that as being better than that dread of nothingness. And it's crucial to see that both of these kinds of identification are false. They're Mara, feeling no good or feeling special. How many times have you identified with them just in one day? Being able to let go of these two types of identification, I often think, can be likened to crossing a stream. It's a kind of stream that's just wide enough so that you can't reach your foot over to the other side without having to let go of the other and be in that middle territory for a long time. It's being able to step over the water even though we don't even have a sense of that there's something on the other side to step onto. There's such a tremendous fear of nothingness. We're afraid that if we let go of the identification of the rock, that there'll be nothing left. It's quite a journey. We're so afraid to let go, that we usually carry this heavy rock, this heavy burden of identification, of I. We carry it so long that we become so weak and exhausted that we finally let it go. It's when we can no longer endure it that we usually drop it. And then when we drop it, there's this sudden experience of lightness and ease. And it's such a surprise. It's like, oh, is that all it was? No, it's just this feeling of openness and feeling present. And it's wonderful. It's such a relief. It's when we're not grabbing on to the thoughts, I'm the worst or I'm the best. Understanding that it's useless to carry around these burdens, to believe these thoughts, understanding that letting go is what brings happiness, is an an example of knowing ourselves. This understanding can become so deep that when the thoughts come, those kind of thoughts of wanting to be special, or of feeling totally worthless and no good, when they come, they're just not sticky anymore. We just don't grab. And there's less and less sense of of that rock, of that identification, and there's more happiness, more ease. These kind of thoughts, when there isn't that identification, just aren't a problem anymore. They're just thoughts. And they just come and go. There's no grabbing. And it's such a deep relief. It's really putting 
a dent in the eye. So letting go of identification with these kind of thoughts is one way to work with the 8th and 10th army of Mara. Another way of finding an inner balance between the polarity of hating oneself or putting oneself in a higher position between inflation and deflation is discovering gratitude within oneself. Being grateful, the experience of being grateful, is very strengthening. It gives us the strength to cross over the stream, even when we don't have a sense of what's on the other side. It gives us the strength to let go of I, I think it's about two years ago. It was around this time in the three-month retreat. It's around this time that things get much more intense for everyone, yogis, staff, teachers. And I was um, about to have a day off. And day off is a very painful concept even to <laughs> consider sometimes. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a foolish thought, actually, day off. <laughs> you know, once, 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 once a yogi once said to me, there are no Sundays in samsara. <laughs> so anyway, I had this concept, day off, which was already a setup for a lot of suffering. And it turned out that I had to do this, uh, I had to pick up this prescription for somebody, for a yogi, which was about two-hour drive from here. And I left here late, and I didn't have the best directions, and I got lost. (laughs) And I got more and more grumpy and more and more angry. And I finally found the place. It was a, a VA hospital. And then I had to, you know, find the place where I needed to pick up the prescription. And I got more and more grumpy, but it was taking longer and longer. And I finally found the building that I had to go in. And I just hadn't seen anything, you know, practically the whole time I had driven in. I parked the car, ran in, and then I, I had to wait, you know, like 45 minutes for this prescription. And I was just burning, you know, because I had this desire to have my day off. So I went and I sat down in the um, waiting room. And I was <laughs> anger, anger. And then I just opened my eyes and I looked around and I saw the immensity of suffering around me. You know, these were mostly people my age who had been so damaged by the war, mostly by the Vietnam War, but there were many men there from World War II or the Korean War. And it was so, the contrast between that feeling, feeling like I was being interrupted in my day, and just getting there and opening to the immensity of what was going on there, it was such a teaching. And I was so, it turned into this fantastic trip. You know, it was like I was so grateful for the opportunity to see this and be there. And I thought about how fortunate just we all are for even being able to watch our mind for one moment. That we're not broken. We're not broken or defeated people to the point where we can't work on ourselves and look for the truth and find it. You know, and and just to think of a day where you might not have a body part working very well or there might be some deep emotional pain surfacing, or it might seem like too long a day, or whatever thing is going on for us in a day, when you contrast that to being totally broken, you know, it's, we're so lucky. And there can be such an inspiration and gratefulness for this, 
rather than, you know, that constant complaining that <laughs> accompanies us through the day. This, gra- this gratefulness shifts that to a sense of gratitude for whatever difficulty we might be working with in a day. It's a privilege to be able to do a retreat, even for an hour, never mind for three months. And we forget. It's easy to forget. There are three characteristics of conceit. The first is that it destroys gratitude. The second is that it allows us to put others down. Or third, we'll hide from others the good things about people, you know, so that they won't think highly of that person. So first, it destroys gratitude. Ingratitude is when we don't appreciate or respect or we forget all the good things or little kindnesses that other people have shown us in the past. It's said that there are two types of rare and precious beings in this world. The benefactor, someone who has done a kindness for us in our life, one who is kind, and second, one who is grateful, one who can genuinely open and appreciate, open to and appreciate any kind of kindness that has been shown them. Two types of rare and precious human beings in this world. And there are many benefactors in our life. Sometimes they're more subtle. You know, there there might be little kindnesses rather than very dramatic ones. But whether it's a benefactor is a friend or a teacher or a parent, in whatever form, they're very rare and precious in our life. An ungrateful person cannot recognize or acknowledge the many kindnesses shown them in their life. They can't feel this gratefulness, and the heart is closed, and that's the suffering. It's, it's one of the deepest kinds of suffering. When we can't feel this gratefulness, there's often a sense of self-pity or self-glory, which if one actually looks at it, it's a very deep sense of insecurity at play, the self-pity or self-glory. And it's said that gratitude is the antidote. For me, the most powerful teaching in my life was when my mother was pretty ill by the time I was born, and I watched her get sicker and sicker, and then dying, and then she died when I was 13 years old. And I think that I was always sort of different than the other kids I knew. I I just had such a sense of our mortality. You know, that's been probably the biggest um, friend I've had is this almost constant sense that, yeah, you know, I'm going to die any time, and we never know when we're going to die or when anyone else will die. Any parting could be it. Being able to open to this, that yes, we all are mortal, that anything that takes birth does die, can actually inspire us to wake up. It's very energizing and inspiring when we can look at this truth. Right after my mother died, the woman who lived across the street from me came over and brought me the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And it was kind of interesting that I had this sense of unbearable loss. And she gave me this book, as I know now, as a way to help me try to understand what was happening 
and to use it as a teaching. Death is the understanding. Death is the greatest teacher for awakening. Sometimes I like to look up a poet's last poem. And um, this is Herman Hesse's last poem. It's called The Rustling of a Broken Branch. The broken, splintered branch hanging year after year dryly rattles its song in the wind without foliage, without bark. It is barren and faded, tired of living too long, tired of dying too long. Its song is hard and tenacious. It sounds arrogant, hiding the fear. One more summer, another long winter. It sounds arrogant, hiding the fear. I think the greatest conceit is this incredible arrogance we have as human beings, that we think that somehow we think we're going to live 10 minutes from now, or a half an hour from now, or two years from now. It's just total foolishness. There's, you know, it's idiotic. There's no guarantee that we're not going to make it through the next second. It's just, it's, it's really being blind. It's not facing what's happening, what's actually happening moment by moment. And we have this incredible fear of death. It's as awesome as the arrogance. Not facing this incredible change, this incredible moment-by-moment change is such a lie that it deadens us, it separates us from the truth of things that we just don't know. And when we can face this, and it's not easy, you know, this is a person's, a great person's last poem where he was still struggling with this fear and this arrogance. When we can actually open we learn not to take life for granted. And the other side of this arrogance is that we become so grateful for each moment of life. And it brings us such life. We live so much more fully. It sounds like a paradox, but it's the greatest gift and the greatest teaching. For myself, in my life, over and over, I found that when I am feeling worthless or no good, when the Eighth Army of Mara is grinding its teeth in my neck or something, I usually immerse myself in nature in some way. And this immersion in nature usually helps me let go of the identification with the pain And I usually feel whole and renewed and more connected. Suzuki Roshi says that if you have truly understood a frog, you have understood everything. (laughs) If you have truly understood a frog, you have understood everything. Gratitude not only means gratitude to other human beings, it really includes this gratitude to all beings, to all life in the universe. It's, it's bringing that understanding that we're totally interdependent and that we, as a, as a being, are very dependent on all other life for our well-being, for our sense of health. 
we live in this tremendous community of being seen and mostly unseen, living in the water and on the earth and in the air. One of the most wonderful times to open to this interdependence is when we sit down for a meal. Now that just to be able to contemplate when one picks up a prune, you know, and looks at it, just what it was that brought about this moment that you could be sitting there eating this prune, it's awesome. You know, what it took for someone to dig the earth and plant the seed and and care for the tree and the time and the sun, you know, the sun and the water, the rain, the the enormous, um, just time that it takes to grow something like that and care. And someone who picks it and the, the gasoline that it takes to transport it and the truck and the the delivery people and the cooks that bring it to us, you know, they cook it and the gas that cooks it. And It's so funny because we have this way of speaking, like, I cooked breakfast today and I'm eating, <clears throat> but it's all a big lie. <laughs> you know, it's all just this incredible interconnection of energy. And I think one of the nicest things to do when we're feeling bummed out when we're on retreat is to go to a meal and really try to think about just the giving that's happening from the cooks and the staff and all the giving that's happening just to be able to receive this moment. If we can open to it, it changes a very drab, horrible day into a very joyful experience because we actually open and receive. Receiving takes a kind of letting go of control. We often, we often emphasize giving, and yet we're receiving moment by moment the sound of the heat, just the heat. It's so cold out. Can you imagine if we didn't have heat in this building? You know, it's really amazing that we have this shelter. We we forget, we miss out on what that um, understanding can bring us, the joy that it can bring us. One of the staff people here gave Stephen and I a book to read <coughs> recently called Vision. It's about a vision, well, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic book about a Native American Indian teacher called Grandfather and his teaching. Grandfather savored everything in life as he savored the water fully and with all his senses to a state of utter rapture. He would walk through the forests, fondling leaves, touching flowers, hugging trees, and lifting loam in cupped hands to smell. He would observe even the most common things for long periods of time extracting every nuance from them. Life was always new and fresh to him, an adventure packed with excitement. He was a child, always at play, always searching, tasting, touching, smelling, hearing, and seeing the world and life fully. To him, every entity of earth was an object of worship, his life a constant prayer of thanksgiving, and his quest was always for rapture. In watching him live that day, I learned how to live and the true meaning of life. To me, I think the factor of enlightenment of rapture is probably the most difficult for us to 
develop or discover within ourselves this joy, this wonder. And I think that gratitude is really a doorway to this joy. It's so important for us to understand this. When we live close to the land, often we learn this kind of gratitude, this sense of interdependence with life and our dependence on life. We can't avoid it. It's this constant reminder. When Stephen and I went to South Africa to teach several years ago, we were um, brought to Botswana at the end of six weeks there to a private game reserve. It's that same um, time when we were up in the <laughs> above the water hall with the lions underneath us. Um, one of the most wonderful parts of that experience for me was going out every day in jeep rides looking for animals. And the person who brought us up there was um, always in the front seat with Steve. Steve, his name was Steve, and Stephen was there. They would have binoculars and cameras, and, and I would be in the back seat with the guide, whose name was Lapata. And over time, Lapata became my teacher there. It was just amazing to watch him. Like, we were all just so excited, and we'd be staring out and looking for animals, and Lapata would be almost looking like he was dead asleep. I mean, he just looked... He is the most relaxed human being I've ever met in my life. You know, he just didn't have an ounce of tension anywhere. It's this utter, utter relaxation. And I just, you know, we'd be going along and we'd be... We'd all be looking as hard as we could. And all of a sudden, he'd go... And he never, I never saw him open his eyes. <laughs> and there would be this, and then we'd have to get the binoculars and look. And he'd, you know, he would have, he would have sensed this being there, you know. And we would sometimes, one time we stopped to see a herd of giraffe, and he had counted them all. He knew how many were there, and we were arguing about how many giraffe were there with binoculars. It was extraordinary to see the difference in his way of sensing the world. And, and after I, you know, I contemplated the difference between how we were trying to see and how he could see. And the difference was in this complete state of relaxation. It was this kind of utter relaxation, but very alert. He, it was a relaxed readiness. And that's how we need to be in looking for the truth. Mostly how we are is like we were in the front seat with binoculars. We're looking, we're searching, we're looking outside of ourselves and we're so tight. Uh, And it can't happen. It just can't happen with forcing. The experience of truth comes from this utter relaxation. Just a relaxed readiness. So that whenever something comes into the field of awareness, We're there without trying. It just happens. In relationship to this relaxed readiness of awareness, I think it's the most ordinary, common, actions that we do over and over again in our life that can bring us the deepest and can help us develop this relaxed readiness of awareness. I think that what I love about Vipassana is this extraordinary ordinariness of experience. It's not about how many times have you been with a breath? or been with a sound, or been with a taste. It's not this kind of jumping off to Pluto, 
or the moon, it's really just going very, it's sinking in every moment to this utter ordinariness of seeing or hearing or thinking. What's more ordinary than thinking? And this, this repetition, this constant repetition of being with how it is and being with how it is, it can bring us so deep. The more we do this, the more at home in life we are, the more connected we are, the more intimate we are with our experience. Ingratitude. Ingratitude is that second and third characteristic of conceit. It's that which leads to putting down or belittling other people, or when we don't acknowledge the more positive qualities of people. There are so many surface differences among people, their personalities, their views on how things should be. You know, we all have this great range of preferences. Conceit means that we can't accept or respect the differences between us, and this blocks the possibility of learning to compromise. The ability to try to reach an arrangement that takes into account the differences between people in any given situation. If we can't learn to care or respect the differences between people and learn to work with these differences, there is continual backbiting or deep wounds and no peace. This is why conceit is considered to be so dangerous. We tend to put people into categories and it's based on comparing. No matter what religion one is, or race, or what country one is from, no matter what sex one is, or what kind of job one has, what kind of belief system one has, or what kind of views or opinions one has, basically, we're all suffering. It's the great first noble truth. This is a quote from Galway Canal. In the twentieth century of my trespass on earth, having exterminated one billion heathens, heretics, Jews, Muslims, witches, mystical seekers, black men, Asians and Christian brothers, every one of them for their own good. A whole continent of red men for living in unnatural community and at the same time having relations with the land. One billion species of animals for being subhuman and ready to take on the bloodthirsty creatures from the other planets. I, technological man, grown out this testament of my last will. When you contemplate how much war, how much killing has been done on this planet, how much harm caused to other human beings or to other beings, all because of this conceit, all because we put people into categories, we can see how lethal it is, how destructive it is, this comparing.
not accepting the differences between people is what this is all about. We tend to put people in the category, this person can do that, that person can't do that. And that's why it's so important to remember that the Dhamma is everywhere, the truth is everywhere, and that we are all suffering, that that's what we all share. I think I'll stop there in terms of going into other armies of Mara. There's more to say about the last army and the ninth army, the desire for gain, reverence, and fame. So I'll continue this talk at some other point. I wanted to end with a quote, though, from Isaac Denison. It's from Out of Africa. Once, when Dennis and I had been up and were landing on the plane of the farm, they were in an airplane, a very old Kikuyu, Kikuyu tribe man, came up and talked with us. You were up very high today, he said. We could not see you. We could only hear the airplane sing like a bee. I agreed with him that we had been up high. Did you see God? he asked. No, I said, we did not see God. Aha, then you were not up high enough, he said. But now tell me, do you think that you will be able to get up high enough to see him tomorrow? I do not know, I said. And you, Bedar, he said, turning to Dennis. What do you think? Will you get up high enough in your airplane to see God? Really, I do not know, said Dennis. Then, he said, I do not know at all why you two go on flying. <laughs> Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.